You're listening to The Lowdown, a podcast inspired by the creative people in the bass making community. I'm Frankie. I'll be sitting down with bass makers to explore what drives them creatively and to find out what challenges they face in business of bass. Let's find out what it's all about. Let's get The Lowdown. Hey, uh, welcome to the Lowdown. As usual, Eric and I are here, and uh, today we're super stoked. Uh, we've got Tim Sicer uh, of Lowdown Bass Guitars, which uh, no relation to the Lowdown podcast, but hey, you know, <laughs> only nice. only today, only today. That's right. Well, super pleased to have you, man. Thanks for coming on. Of course, my pleasure. I was stoked to uh, to see that you guys were doing this and to be asked to be a part of it. So thank you. So yes. now, Tim, Tim, where are you from? Uh, I was born in Elgin, Illinois. I was raised in Arlington Heights, so northwest suburbs of Chicago. And uh, I've lived in Chicago now for about 15 years. I call myself a Chicagoan. It used to be kind of dicey because you go to different places and people say, oh, you say you're, oh, I'm from Chicago. And people go, oh, what part? And you say Arlington Heights. And they're like, shut the hell up. You're not from Chicago. (laughs) So, um, So, but now I feel like I can claim it, you know, like I'm a property owner. I'm a business owner in the city. My wife's a business owner in the city. So it's just like, yeah, Chicago. How'd you get your start making bases? Like what made you think one day, like, geez, I think I want to make bases. I mean, I mean, it's always, I think it's always kind of been there. I was always very hands-on. Um, I would always change my own strings. I would always, I like kind of figured out how to do some very basic setup stuff uh, early on, just uh, with a little bit of resources that were available then, like, which was a lot of bass player magazine and uh just kind of like uh videos like instructional videos sometimes people would kind of delve into that kind of stuff so i would piece together a little bit there and then uh as i was starting to make a go of it as a musician uh without any other job i was like what else can i do to kind of scrap up some extra dollars here and there especially in the winter because everything stops here in the winter it's just kind of like the scene just disappears so um so I was like, well, I'll do some repair work. And then I started doing like just a few little things. Like I tried to epoxy a fretless that I had and it was impossible, it was a disaster. And like, uh, I tried to like work on a parts build. It didn't come up very good. I tried to make a pick art. It didn't come up very good. So I gave up. And then I kind of just started gigging coincidentally and forgot about it and then played full time as a player for probably like five years, six years after that. And then I just kind of started buying a lot of gear because I started to be able to have some money from playing enough gigs to like pay the rent and buy gear. Uh, and that kind of just led to me purchasing some things on Talkbase that were just kind of like, I didn't need, but I was like, this looks cool. Uh, one was like a Warmoth build that some guy just did a horrible job with. And I'm like, oh, it was like 300 bucks and it was gorgeous Koa top and back. And it was a cool jazz bass. So I, I bought that and ended up, uh, I was playing Cliff Boardwell custom instruments back then. Um, so that was my introduction to the custom bass world was, uh, you know, I just loved his designs and I became in the market for a nice instrument and I discovered that and kind of got introduced to the whole vibe of like exotic woods and single cut designs and like uh, contemporary pickups and preamp, uh, you know, combinations, like the whole vibe. Uh, and that's, I kind of like, unfortunately, there was an instrument where I had an issue with the truss rod. And that led me to meet a gentleman named Carl Pettigo, who is known as the Chicago bass doctor. And he was the Lakeland shop manager in the 90s. Oh, 
okay yeah so he was like kind of the head the head honcho there and then there was kind of like some odd stuff that happened with the company and so he kind of got let go and then uh, the Piracella brothers bought Lakeland and hired him back because everyone was like he's an he's an OG he's a badass and uh so I went to him for this trust rod issue and then uh also had this Warmoth base and which I wasn't doing anything with and I was like hey you know do you do like apprenticeships and he was like no it's like oh okay and then sounds like a sounds like a soft yes to me uh, yeah it was like no (laughs) and so i was like all right i mean i understand like dude is super busy he's like one of the go-to repair guys in in chicago you know there's like a handful of dudes that all the players take their instruments to so um and there's a lot of bass players in this general urban area so um so I was like, well, how about this? I got this, this base and I want to kind of soup it up. And I kind of wanted to Lakeland it anyway, like put a humbucker in the bridge and just kind of like put a jazz neck on it instead of the kind of more P profile deck. So I, it seemed like the right thing. I was like, I'll just pay you what you would charge me to do this work anyway as a customer, but like, let me observe you doing the work. And he's like, okay, that's cool. And so we just kind of started doing sessions on Saturdays. I would go over there at like 10, 10 30 in the morning, usually like kind of hung over or like after getting home from a late gig at like two in the morning. And he would usually just going to be kind of like curmudgeon because it was early in the end of the week. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it was a vibe. Sometimes it was like, I was like, does this guy really want me around here? Like I'd be asking stupid just, questions and like, I don't know. Now, how, but, how old were you when you were doing that? I was like 30. It was kind of like I, I I started to get a little burnt out on the music industry because yeah. I was hustling super hard, playing like 200 plus gigs a year and uh, and and trying to get on to the next level, kind of like touring syndicate stuff in my late 20s. Uh, and then I got married and then um, I just kind of got burnt out. I was playing a lot of weddings. I was playing a lot of corporate events and I was just kind of like my soul, my artistic soul was sucked out. But Carl was also a very sympathetic person in that regard because he's a musician, but chose that path as a profession. And he's into all sorts of like weird, cool music and very like non-traditional stuff. Uh, And he's a guitar player primarily, but he's like the guy for like fret leveling in Chicago on basses. So he's kind of an enigma. in, in his own right. So we kind of, I, I, I kind of like, he was a bit of my shoulder to cry on too, because I was just like, I don't want to be a musician anymore. I want to do something else. And he was kind of like, at times was like, I don't know if you really want to do this because you're a really good musician. Are you sure about it? But he would also kind of be like, yeah, the music business is shitty. It sucks. Like, you know, it's, it's rough on people who are artistically extremely gifted, but don't have the business sense together and just get lost in the shuffle. So, um, so that was kind of what I mean eventually it was just like the whole thing evolved he, he went from showing me this, how to carve a nut uh, to how to do fret leveling to how to route a bigger pickup cavity to how to you know drill tuner holes like all the kind of just uh, what essentially ends up being like the back end work of building right. an instrument um, that was like my whole first year or two years with Carl 
And, uh, and then like pretty much what happened was I was playing these board wells. I had one with a low B and I had one with a high C. I was playing fives and I just, I loved both these instruments, but I couldn't stand not having a low B and then I couldn't stand not having the high C. So I was like, I need a six. Like I, it was just where I was going musically. I need a six string bass. And so I started specking them out with like Cliff and started looking at maybe doing like a, a hybrid situation with like a Conklin neck or I'm sorry, yeah, Carvin neck and like a slab body that I did, or, you know, just some sort of hybrid thing to save money. And nothing was, nobody had the spec I wanted really other than fully custom and all that stuff was looking like three, four or $5,000. And so I was like, if I'm going to spend that money, I'm just going to spend it on wood and pickups and hardware. And that's kind of how I discovered best base gear was when I, it came time to order pots and capacitors and, sh and heat shrink and, right. Uh, you know, strap buttons and nine volt battery boxes and just like all of the stuff. All of the stuff. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I have I bought enough. What I have a, actually, I was there this afternoon. I have an ex an exceptional lumber yard in Des Plaines. It's called Owl Hardwood. And the first time I went in there, Carl told me to go because I was like, "Listen, man, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build." I'm going to build a, a base. I want to build a six for myself to play. And, you know, so I go to owl and he'd always show me his finds from there. He'd be like, check out this bird's eye. I got it owl. You know, like, look at this board. Isn't this insane? And he was like, it was like in the back of a stack and it was only like 50 bucks. And, and so, yeah, I went and I was just like, what the hell is this place? Everything just like says like five slash four and has a price next to it. And all the wood names are abbreviated and, and there's just stacks of boards yeah so uh there's a guy that works there i'd actually i'm embarrassed i don't know his last name but his name is kurt and he's actually a luthier and he just happened to bump into me when i was walking around aimlessly and was like what are you trying to build i was like a guitar and, and he's like oh and then that was it i was in there for like two hours with him and he just took me up and down the stacks and was like i've used this before this is cool this you could try but if you're going to make a neck out of it you got to be careful how hard you dig in like and just kind of showed me the ropes and i left with way too much wood and one boy, six string boy. for myself turned into six bases and that was the beginning of the end as it were so so, so like like most of us you became a builder just to justify your wood hoarding addiction kind of <laughs> i you know so like i was I was thinking about that when I was walking in there today, because I always just like look for cool little pieces like they have a lot of like kind of like they I think from just the milling process and what they sell the most of. They have a lot of cool like quarter inch cutoffs a lot. Yeah. yeah and um, so you can find some really cool stuff for like tops or fingerboards, but it's a total crapshoot because they, that stuff isn't always milled up to where it's available. Like sometimes they'll have like flamed ebony and they'll have they'll be like. 30 boards 30 quarter inch boards that are exact fingerboard size sitting in a box and like and the next time you go there a couple weeks later it's all gone because someone found out and came in and bought it up oh naturally yeah yeah i, I, I was just kind of thinking how cool it is that you basically turned what was, was sort of as an unfortunate uh trust rod situation in, into basically befriending this kind of uh you know, guitar guru guy, curmudgeon, who basically took a shine to you because you have a good personality and apparently have some perseverance too and just kind of like showed, showed you everything. I think it's so cool. Yeah. It got to the point where I kind of felt like I was annoying him a little bit. 
um it's because a i think that's all it is <laughs> i mean when, when you start talking about like making stuff from scratch like uh you're getting into some pretty like you need some machinery and lakeland has yeah. all that stuff in the basement and i was kind of like can you help me cut these strips and laminate this neck please and and so those sessions kind of like i mean that stuff's a lot more work and it was super yeah. dangerous for for me as someone who's never used those tools before so he had to do it that's the only way i observed uh and and he coached me but uh, I never laid I, for liability reasons, if nothing else, I never was like using that machinery. Um, but that was a big challenge because after the first batch, one of the hardest things for me, and this is why I don't think I am like a wood storage person is I didn't have the space to, to right. store stuff living in a city. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, just the, the logistical difficulties of having a space are, uh, and, and the cost associated with literally just a room in a shit building, you know, it's like, yeah. um, so I never, I was lucky because Owl, between Owl and between sourcing stuff online from the multiple luthier wood specific places that are now available and easily accessible, um, I don't really have to store much of anything other than neck blanks. I keep a lot of like, if I'm going to make if like because of my workflow like i'm working on a batch that will probably start in june i probably will start tackling the next in earnest as far as like ripping wood away and starting to change the shape like later in the fall so i try to get everything in the shop acclimating by like the spring at least if not a year ahead or so yeah. and they're and they're doing i mean the lumber yard is they're great so i know they're they're they they do a good job of taking care of their stuff and I mean, as much as a lumber yard can, I guess, but it's just, I, I trust them and I trust their selection and I trust uh, their process. I mean, I've gotten, wood is wood. So I've gotten stuff from them that probably wasn't dried out enough and cracked after I glued it up. You know, it's, that stuff happens. I've gotten stuff that's cupped after like, especially the thin stock, you know, that's the, the flip side of buying that stuff when it's that thin is sometimes when you go to, 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 to chop it up, it just goes whoop and cups. So, so so walk walk me through this one so uh you know i'm i'm looking at your website and here at lowdown bass guitars and 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 i'm trying to like i'm just going through all the different items you know and all the all the different pieces and i'm just kind of like this is pretty amazing you spend a ton of time going through and laying out stories laying out sort of you know, what, you know, what you've, what you've been working on and, you know, um, also some of the picks, do you have anything that's specifically that, you know, you're particularly proud of that we should look at? Um, generally all of the good base porn is in the, the sold sections. Uh, well, naturally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's <laughs> usually, that's kind of like, um, a lot of the stuff that I end up having available as stock is, available because i've chosen to make stuff with extra wood or parts or whatever mm. so yeah. um or like cut leftover cutoffs from a from a customer's instrument um so oftentimes a lot the stock builds end up kind of being a little i mean I've, I've i've done some fun stock builds but the customer builds is where where you really can start to get into some crazy stuff because uh they're sort of uh dictating the direction of the build or, or I'm dictating to them what I think the best choices are. And there's like, yeah. with, with some people, there's no limit. They want an instrument. 
and they know what my price point is and, and how I fit into their budget. And so there's nothing I'm going to really top out. And so that can be fun because you can go really crazy with options and stuff. Do you find that happens a lot where you're guiding them through the decision-making process? I, I found it's just, it's such a, there's no trend in my clientele whatsoever. It's just each, each instrument is just a unique build, yeah. Yeah. no matter uh, kind of like what the scenario is. So um, it's a little more like the sky's the limit within the confines of what I think is acceptable as the person who's like going to be slapping a name on this. Mm -hmm. um, one of my biggest influences who I had the chance to meet actually at a solo bass competition I performed in, in New York uh, for Phil Jones um, is Michael Tobias. Yeah. And I just, everything about their instruments and their brand, I just absolutely love. Um, I, I love their sort of unwillingness to do people's crazy ideas because the, the thing is, is it's like, I kind of, I kind of think of it in regards to music as well, where like, uh, you know, people can get popular despite being like competent musically. Mm -hmm. um, but there's the masters are the masters and the respect is there no matter what. And, and I feel like sometimes when the customer tries to dictate too much exactly what they want in the instrument, you end up losing the benefit of having a luthier who was a professional musician or has worked closely with elite level performing musicians and touring musicians and mm -hmm. understands from a from a real world standpoint what a gigging working bass yeah. player needs in order to bring out their ability to create music at the highest level possible um, and ergonomics come into play and you know how 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 you want to put your your personal stamp comes into play but i just love the fact that it's like they they do everything from just like crazy beautiful boutique woods to just like a swamp ash body and a maple neck and a bird's eye fingerboard and it's all equally beautiful and amazingly executed and and yeah i mean and when you meet them and when you talk to them and when you get into sort of a little bit of their world and how they how they function living out in the woods you know and working essentially at, at the house in the garage but it's like a little team and they have a process and their finished work is amazing and just the it's the whole package and when you see people playing their instruments you know it's sort of like Fodera in a sense too where anybody can afford to buy these instruments but there's something about the people that choose to play these instruments of just being oftentimes at a very elite level that you know there's a connection there with the quality of the instrument and the build and also the quality of the musicianship or the, the player, not just technique, but, but from just a, a, a professional musician like standpoint or like a sound standpoint. So, I mean, I, I always kind of explain to people when you get, when you break down what I'm doing, it's kind of like, I'm just making jazz basses, you know, it's, 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 it does not look like that oftentimes. But from, from where, uh, and I've talked to my good friend, Jake Sarek of Sarek Bases, who is just also an incredible businessman and luthier. And, you know, uh, we have very high level of respect for each other's products, but our products are nothing like one another. And I think that's probably part of the reason why we get along so well, but um, it's, I, I think he's sort of like, he's self-professed to me, like, oh, I'm just, I'm like coming at it from a Rickenbacker point of view. Like that to me is like, that's my base. And I'm like, for me, 
probably just because I grew up with it and I love Jocko and I just the music I played and my function as a professional musician in the scene that I was working in. I love jazz bass. So that to me is like the optimal instrument is essentially is like a jazz bass. And, and also because I apprenticed with Lakeland, you know, there's a very definitely that's a very tangible print on my style as well and how I approach my builds. So I've always sort of been of the mind of trying to marry like my love of exotic woods and, and the beauty of nature and being able to use it in a way that just complements your design. And also like it not being a sterile, scooped, dead, uh, heavy, 35 inch long, you know, kind of like impossible to play thing. Or, you know, the, the horn comes out to the 15th fret and it just wants to go derp every time you, you, you put it on your lap, you know. So um, it was always kind of like trying to find a happy marriage of the stuff that I liked as a consumer of instruments and also so, like as a uh, someone who was using these instruments as a tool in order to make a living regularly, so... Yeah, I mean, like this bass particularly, like it looks like it'd be very well balanced. I mean, just just to me looking at it from a you know design perspective, it looks like something you you would just put on and would just stay stay put where it's supposed to be. And yeah, if you flip anyway. through, there's like a sequence of photos following this. If you just flip through uh, the thumbnails following this, you'll see this is uh, this bass is representative of another sort of policy of mine as a as an as a business owner, which is like I try to waste as little bit as possible. So a lot of times in the, in the early days of the business, my overhead was so low, I was trying to make stock to sell to sort of like boost the, I mean, nobody's gonna buy instruments from someone who's only built three instruments and there's no proof that they've built instruments online and there's no testimonials from people that have played these instruments to be like, they're actually cool. Um, but I just, uh, I would take, a lot of times with just how that works out with the lumber yard, I'd get enough to make a, a book match body blank and there'd be a little piece left over that on its own wasn't wide enough to build a body with. It needed a, a, a mate to book match with, but I was, I ran out of, ran out of that wood. So what I would do is I would take the, the three quarter inch cutoff wood from my neck blanks and then just side stripe onto the side. So what, what essentially would be garbage wood then becomes repurposed and and then that that blank would sort of go through the thickness center and then from there it would it would uh it would be a body blank which eventually i mean all that wood would just be like cut off wood but yeah. but, it, but it looks wicked cool though because you know when, when you have the contouring on the side of the instrument and you, you can you can see you know, see where the like where the contrasting you know wood kind of comes through you know in a, in a mm -hmm. way it's kind of like it reminds you like a little bit of like a carl thompson kind of thing absolutely uh, but but also I think of like uh, like Rickenbacker headstocks where you have like you know, the maple going through the center and you have the you know, the walnut wings that sort of thing mm -hmm. you know but it's like you're taking that and like kind of you know but doing a a very different thing with it where it, it, it it's cool in that something that was it seems like it's born out of uh, conservation actually ends up looking incredibly artistic and intentional you know which yeah is really really cool you know yeah one of the one of the first instruments I, I sort of took that approach on was uh, I had a, when I kind of decided to make it a business and really start to push the fact that I was building these instruments, mm. um, I had a lot of cool opportunities very early on, completely unintentionally, probably just solely based on the fact that I was a working musician and I had a, a network of other bass players with very easy access to. 
Um, but also I was trying to be proactive from like a networking point of view from other people in the city that were doing these sort of things and how I could work with them to do little mini showcases or, or like uh, do shows together and split the cost of a booth or what, you know, whatever, just any way to kind of, to expand the brand. So I uh, ended up hitting up Michael Arnapol of MAS Soundworks uh, who builds speaker cabinets and was building all these crazy designs. And uh, we ended up, he ended up taking one of my instruments to Summer Nam just because uh, he liked what I was doing. So he, he just, I was like, yeah, if you want to take them and set them up in the booth, he took a fretless five and then a fretted five. And uh, he came back and he was like, man, like there was a lot of good feedback about your instruments. And I was like, oh, cool. So then we actually ended up going out to Winter Nam together uh, whatever, six months later. And one of the instruments where I had done that sort of conservation approach of like laminating all sorts of stuff and kind of doing what they call cat eyes, uh, where you do like veneers and layers going out yeah. that kind of at the butt end of the instrument then with all the contouring so and like, yeah, like a window. And it was a, it was a real, I mean, the instrument, it was a fretless with a zebra wood fingerboard and a, or a zebra wood top and a marble wood fingerboard. So it was very stripy and cool looking. And uh, it ended up getting a lot, a lot of people stopped just to, just to look, cause they were like, oh, wow. And I realized, you know, that's all you need well, is just th it, that stop that sort of what's that. And then you're in, then you, you, it's like, oh, hi, here, this is this, this is that. And then, you know, then they know about it. And then they, it's like, here, play it, like, try it out, play it. And, and then they play it and they're like, holy crap. And then you're like, okay, cool. Now you're in, you know, it's. And that's half the challenge is just getting someone to sit there and play it. Absolutely. And, and, and that's part of a, you know, uh, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, cause we get, you know, the folks you, you know, yourself and other folks that we've, we've had in the show. It's just, it's, uh, it's always interesting to me to think of, uh, you know, you, you would, you'd almost think that like everything's been done, but then you can find, you can always find something that, that is, is going to just, you know, make make your thing stand out as, as different. You know, even if it's something that you might not think uh, is is that incredible. You know, uh, to start mm. with, but some, you know, again, like again, stopping people in their tracks as they just like see like what the hell am I looking at there? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's a very competitive market for sure. Yep. It, it's uh, unfortunately for guys like me, people like Sire are setting sure the bar so I'm low from low, a, yeah. yeah from a from a pricing standpoint for what it is that they offer and I've, i do a lot of repair work um and i have a i have a really good network of professional bass players that bring their instruments to me um so i uh i've seen a lot of sires and i can i can totally respect why people choose them and the build quality for sure. like as far as the wood quality and stuff of what they're doing but um it, it makes it very difficult from someone who's trying to sell an instrument in the like the I want to be able to afford to eat food range right. Um, right. you know and compete with guys who are like well for like 700 bucks I can get this sire on musician's friend or from CME or whatever and like and and that thing's ready to go like I can buy it and I can play a gig on it that night and I don't have to wait six months and I don't have to you know or I don't have to pay twice or three times as much. So, well, 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 well I mean, and that's that's part of it. It's just like you, know, you go to make a custom instrument for somebody, and before you even have like cut a piece of wood, 
or plan something out. I mean, just just your materials are going to be more than that sire is going to, you know, sell for. And Mm -hmm. that being said, I mean, as as ready to go as they are, I mean, uh, I can definitely tell you, you I've seen. I don't know a, a, yeah. a number a number that I couldn't count of, of, of people who have purchased sires and they yeah. immediately will change the pickups or the preamp yeah. or yeah. it's like old Mexican and, jazz bases yeah. you know it's like the Very original much. mod the original modern sort of you know happy time it was like the Mexican jazz base revolution or the Mexican p base revolutions I mean those things came out in such high quantity yeah. and like you know five ten years later you could buy one for like two hundred bucks. And then it was like, I mean, but it was still like some of them were total crap, but some of them were good wood and were well put together. You know, whoever yeah. was whoever was assembling it at the factory had a good day and it can, and they had good wood in their hands. And sometimes that's all you needed. And then it's like you said, slap a badass on it, slap some some souped up J pickups and an Audi or Pre or something and, you know, change it to ultralights. But which I get at the $200 range. But, you know, when you start talking about doing all that mod work and you're dropping seven, 800 bucks, it's like you you could have, plus the dude, yeah, the dude you got to pay to do all the work, you know, and the time you got to be without the instrument while the dude that you paid to do all the work is maybe getting to it or is maybe, you know, it's sitting backlogged in a shop while he's getting to 20 other sires and SX bases and or the dude that you've paid to do the work doesn't really know how to do the work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's another risk. So, sure is, which yeah. I mean, I, I've been on the receiving end of that as well as, as a player and it's terrible. So um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a difficult, it's, it's also like you have that. And then on the other end, you have people selling instruments, you know, in the eight to $12,000 range. And, and just because of the mystique of the brand and the, the instrument, it's just like, they're, they're flying off the shelves. So it's, yeah. You know, and, and I can see it with some things, especially when you see like, you know, like for instance, like some Alembics and just like, you know, see the level of just book matching and all the layers yeah. going on. The fact that like every, you know, pretty much everything except probably like the tuners were made in house, yeah. you know, for, for the most part, or, or, or somebody like, like a brand like Lefay, where like, it's just like, you know, two brothers making like pretty much every, again, except for the tuners, they're basically making yeah. everything. So I can, I can and do it by hand. I, I can, I can see that to a degree. And, and again, it's worth it if it's worth it to you ultimately, but, but yeah, but, but definitely on that other end of the spectrum is so, so hard to compete with, uh, you know, with something is actually, serviceable and is in that five to seven hundred dollar range and you know that, that that's 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 tough if especially if the, if the customer doesn't really see the value and getting something more than that i guess mm-hmm. you know, if, if that thing is what does it for them you know like right yeah you know, that, that, that's that's what does it for them yeah. you know so, i mean i've seen some i went i played in i was on a little like new york jazz club tour and a buddy of mine I was playing with is a drummer named Micaiah McCraven. He's a sensational drummer and just like blew up. But he was, uh, it was the uh, Brooklyn Bowl, I think. And they were doing a P-Funk tribute. And I forget the bass player's name. He teaches at Berkeley. He's a, he's a serious dude. He was playing like this Black Squire, like piece of crap. And he sounded so freaking good. So yeah. it was insane. Like the, the funk coming off the stage that night and like the sounds coming out of his amplifier i was just yeah. like holy crap and you know we talked about basses a little bit after the show and i was like so like what are you playing he's like oh i don't know some squire like some some jazz bass and i was like oh cool and just that was it you know or whatever like i mean or you yeah. just had it i who knows yeah. awesome. um but that's just that's 
I mean, that's another that's another part of doing this from uh, the the performer slash luthier double double chair uh, is like some of the some of the priorities. I I I think I I probably have gotten a little brief with customers in the past because some of the things that customers bring up that are just intangible differences in sound and are so like focused on or hung up on. And I just have to be like, like you need to put this in perspective a little bit, you know, it's like, yeah, it's it, it, tough. It could, be, it could be like religion sometimes where, you know, like uh, I see it with like, you know, things like capacitors, you know, for instance, mm. you know, like, oh, it's gotta be the oil and paper capacitors. Like, mm -hmm. It doesn't make a difference, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's wild. It, it is wild, yeah. It's cool. I mean, it's so, like, sorry, go ahead. No, I go ahead, go ahead. I just I, I was, a question. I just, I just, I, I always try to my go-to. So, like, there's a there's an idea that a fretted instrument can exist with extremely low action and not buzz at all, um, and it's right. It's very difficult to explain to people why when they're sitting on their couch, unplugged, whapping away at their instrument and it's like buzzing and making noise. What, what, what's going on? Why is my instrument buzzing? Why, you know, it's like, I know it's kind of buzzing really bad up here and it's kind of buzzing here. And it's, it's like, okay, like, first of all, your action is set pretty low. If you like that, great. That's a, this is a this is a thing you have to get used to as a player is like yeah. you know okay and then also what i always tell them to do is like go go to your amp whatever amp you take out to play with your band at rehearsal or in public and plug your bass in and turn it up to like around the volume that you would need to play at to play with a drummer and then tell me if you hear that buzz exactly and, and it's like, I, nothing as a, as a, I've, I'm constantly complimented on how even my instruments play across the whole spectrum of the instrument. And that's because as a player, when I give yeah. these instruments a once over at the end, it's like, I'm playing the entire range of the instrument and looking right. for it to be as even as possible across. And when I find something I don't like, I address it. But with that being said, it's like, there's no such thing as an instrument that it can exist with like super low fret work or super low uh, action and not buzz a little bit when you're beating the crap out of it. Well, you well, know, that's, well that, that's it. I mean, because ultimately, I mean, everybody, you know, plays a little bit different or has a certain range of dynamics that, that, that they play within, you know, so ultimately the instrument has to be set up to be suitable within that range to sound the way you want the sound. I mean, like you're saying, like even like, I mean, like I know for me personally on a fretted instrument, I like it to kind of like rattle a little bit everywhere yeah. the same you know basically you kind of like you dig in a little bit and you get that you know kind of you know noisy bass player getty lee you know uh john yeah. whistle kind of whistly kind of kind of thing and that's awesome you know yeah. uh but if you i mean if you want to play a p bass with flats and set the action super high and yeah. get that thump thump then like then it's cool then you can you right. won't i mean like there's some super gnarly p bases out there with fretwork that's all jacked up that nobody knows is a problem because they don't play above the 12th fret and they have the totally. action super high and flats on there well, so it's like you, you back know. back back in the 90s a band that was in we we, we played this show and uh, one of the bands that uh played with us was uh well brian beller was in the band it, it, mm. it, 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 he was a play with a band called beer for dolphins and uh, yeah mike Keneally. Yep, exactly. Yeah, he played with Zappa, and so, but yeah. they're they're wicked great guys. But uh, he 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 was playing. I think it was a Mike Lull, uh like mm -hmm. live stream at the time. His action was so friggin' high. And <laughs> seriously, it was crazy. 
but but it didn't sound like that when he played you know because yeah. he he apparently played really hard and and it it just suited the way he played but you know if i if i had to play that my god i'd i'd, yeah. I'd have carpal tunnel by the you know the second song or something yeah it's yeah. crazy it's funny so on the like when you when you started doing the builds, uh, I thought you said something that was really smart. You said, "Okay, well, you know, nobody's going to really buy anything from a guy that's just made three bases, right?" And right. so what you're what you were doing is saying, you know, how do I how do I sort of roll out or scale a few of these out so that I'm able to you know have a footprint, you know, and have some work to show and have some you know build some credibility. I think a lot of a lot of people just starting out don't think about that right you know mm -hmm. they, so they they don't build up a portfolio you know just like you have a portfolio with your art or if any career really right you have a portfolio that that you can point to and you can show um most of the people that we talk to tend to just you know it's like they start out building for like friends and family and you know and it turns into a thing right and mm -hmm. some point there's like an inflection point where they say okay now is the time where I'm going to sort of make that leap and I'm going to actually turn this thing into a business and I'm going to, you know, go down that path. And it didn't, it sounded like with you, you know, you learned how to do it, you know, from really talented people and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. You know, there wasn't like, it didn't seem like anyway from your story that there was a, like a long period in between the time where you, you know, you, you could like, like technically, carry it out right and make a product mm -hmm. that that people could be really excited about and then actually going and and making the leap so from a sort of a business perspective i mean how how is that working uh like did you go and like like on the on the um like did you go and like make a corporation and did you go down that whole path like right out of the gate or did you like as a small business owner or, or how did, how did that go? Like, how did you, how did you go through? I, I sort of started, uh, I started off in a sense doing it for friends and family, but um, that was, that was before I kind of developed the brand. And so to me from the get go, because of my experience with knowing other uh, friends of mine who have started their own businesses, like how much they just pushed on PR and branding yeah. and how that is essentially what will make or break your business. And so because of like my respect for those, those people's kind of like uh, knowledge that they passed on to me in that regards, whether it was on purpose or not, I kind of went into it being like, I'm going to just drill this brand right away. And so I just started doing parts builds and advertising them as lowdown, lowdown, you know? And it's like, at first it was just me buying stuff online and cobbling it together because A, if I screwed it up, I was only out like a hundred bucks right. and B if, if it came out really well, I could slap a D sand the headstock, you know, sand, whatever was on it, uh, slap a decal on it and be like, look, it's a low down base. Um, and I think it was also helpful that I was still performing enough to where people around town were starting to see me show up to gigs with these crazy instruments and were being like, dude, what the hell are you playing? And so then it was like, oh, I made this. And they'd be like, wow, okay. So let, do you have others? Like, can I check it out? And so it was because I was a player, it was, I, I and I had a network already. Yeah. Uh, it sort of spread pretty easily from, from a branding sense because I was insistent upon it and I was able to get instruments into people's hands pretty early on who were playing 
also playing them around town and other people were seeing them play them and be like, oh, is that one of Tim's bases? Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a lowdown. And so, yeah, I mean, I went into it foolishly thinking that it could be like a very successful business within the first year or two. And, uh, and it's just, it's a very, very, very labor intensive process and sort of coming face to face with that and the man hours and the labor versus the money that I was able to charge for them early on almost made me stop doing it multiple times because I was just like, this is so stupid. Like I am killing myself in this little room you know, pulling six to eight hour days down there every day almost, and then going and playing four or five hour gigs afterwards. And just like, why am I doing this? And like, I had some, some not amazing experiences early on with customers and, but you know, enough positive things happened in the early first couple of years that I decided to keep going and keep, keep funneling my own personal money into it in order to keep it surviving in the early years. So I, I did not, I did not get incorporated till, uh, my plan was to do it in 2020. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. it just kind of, everything just kind of pooped out. And so I did this year, I, I did get incorporated in 2020, but it was a weird year. This year was really like, this is my first year of kind of like being a proper, everything yeah. is like, you know, going through the, the LLC business. So, whereas before I was sort of just rolling it into my self-employed musician umbrella. Right. So, so early on, you, so you were, you were putting your own cash in for yeah. the raw material, right. And then you're putting your, you know, massive amount of your own time yeah. right, to be able to, to, to complete the product. And then, you know, and then you would just sort of recycle that. Is that how that would work? Yeah. Essentially like the first batch, um, I just did a huge Nordstrand order and I did like a huge hip shot, hip shot order. Um, and then um, whatever kind of wood and hardware or electronics were left over. I would also do a lot of just like uh, I would do some builds for myself and I would source those parts, you know, just like on talk base in the used section or you know, I'd find stuff where it was pretty much in brand new shape or was in brand new shape and it cost a little less. Um, I was just sort of cobbling together stuff here and there and making, making as many instruments as I could out of it. Um, and what would essentially happen is I would sell those instruments, recoup the initial investment, but then just direct that recoup back into buying hardware and buying pickups and buying wood for the next. And then, you know, the pot after each sort of round of instruments sold, would get a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger until it was pretty much a self-sustaining business. Um, I still don't really want to add up the total man. People are often like, how long does it take to build a base? And I'm yeah. like, well, first of all, I've never built one. I've never just like started the process and been like, I'm going to make one neck and one body. You know, it's always in a batch yeah. and it's impossible to really break down how much, t- I mean, I know people that have done it and it's a fun sort of like, challenge as a business person but like each instrument is so insanely different and so unique that there's the hours there's no there's no general way to be like oh i'm just going to charge hourly for this instrument um and that kind of goes back to the pricing thing like the disparity in pricing between an acceptable gigable base and like the top end of what that range is is so high it's like, how the hell do you figure out where you fit into that as like a, a new luthier, as a new 
business person as a new builder and and that that was that was it just becomes market demand you know you 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 finish a p base you say hey you go on facebook and you say hey guys look at this cool p base i built i don't really need it because i already got all these other instruments so i'm going to sell it does anyone want it for 600 bucks and then it's crickets and then you you wait a month and then you go back on facebook and go hey guys i still got this p base around you know uh i haven't had a lot of interest in it and how about 300 bucks and then all of a sudden it's just like yo dude can i check out that p base and then it's yeah. gone the next day yeah so yeah yeah i i ask people this a lot like I me mean, how do you how do you decide you know what what an hour of your time is worth you know and and like like you're saying i mean the market kind of dictates that so ultimately uh i guess on a level if you didn't love doing this to some degree you would just you would stop you know but yeah. obviously you, you like you you have to have a love for it to keep wanting to do it even if it's like something that isn't necessarily you know kind of like you know have you drive around in a bentley or something you know right right i'll tell you what it saved my ass last year like well I, all the gigs dried up no everything gigs, disappeared yeah. it was like march 15th and i was looking at my calendar and i'm just like well there goes that and uh i had like tours booked i had all sorts of cool stuff happening and i didn't really know what was going to happen and early on i kind of made the decision like i'm just gonna i'm gonna crank out a batch of builds i had like it was some like six six strings and like a couple other instruments and it was just like it was a mountain of work and I was just like, I'm going to do this. this is how I'm going to get through this is like, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dwell on all the music that I'm not playing. I'm right. going to just put all of my energy into this other thing and see where I come out on the other side. And it was the best year for lowdown. I sold like 10 instruments last year. That's awesome. I sold all my stock. I sold, like I had multiple uh, instruments that I, I had one six string that I was like from the early days and I carved the neck too thin and I made a new neck for it. It sold right away. Um, so it was just, I did a base like it was a spring cleaning base because it was you know around springtime and I was spending a lot of time in my shop and I just did like a parts build with a bunch of crap I had laying around and it sold like in a week and it was you know I was like oh like three fifty four hundred bucks I don't know it was just like random tuners and a bridge and a a, a P base neck that was just laying around and just take like, why space, do I have right? this? yeah like why do I have this and <laughs> and so I just like find I had the time you know I I it was the time was not there in 2019 because I was still playing music a lot. So time management was, was a, was a thing. And when all of a sudden there was nothing else there, I was like, wow, I can really make a lot of progress. Like if I really wanted to only do this for yeah. my living, yeah. I could probably, I would definitely make more money. I would probably do way more damage to myself like physically because I would just do it. So hardcore, I would just go full yeah. into it. But I love music so much. I love performing so much. And I, I did get burned out on the music, like the professional musician lifestyle. And building gave me a boat to sort of get into, like a lifeboat to get into and sort of sail the seas for a little bit and like reflect on what's important musically to me. And then when I was ready, it's sort of like the right doors open and the right opportunity. The, the, the things I really wanted to be doing musically started to happen because I sort of unplugged myself from, from the machine um, and sort of did this other thing for a while. So, and I mean, it was, I was approaching playing my instrument with a lot more passion because it wasn't like I was just sitting around being lazy all day and like, oh, I should probably practice, but I'd rather just like watch pedal demos and, you know, 
like to hang out on Netflix. It was like I was trapped in this other place where like I was listening to music all the time while working, but I, I could not be playing my instrument. And I had all these like I had customers waiting and I had all these demands. So when it would be when it would be time to like, you know, go clean off the dust and put on the suit and go to the gig. I was going to the gig so excited about playing yeah. my bass. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause I wasn't doing it ever. I was, and I wasn't, I wasn't in a, in a dark place of not doing it where I was wallowing in like how horrible my musical life was. I was in a, in a very like good place. Like I have this other thing, which I feel great about. And it's my brain was growing and I was learning how to problem solve and I was developing new skills. And I was taking that energy to gigs and having such a better time playing music, even when it was non ideal situations so it's it's circuitously sort of fed me back into this place of where now i have way too much on my hands because now i'm like oh crap gigs are coming back and like i'm i'm working on a new project as a band leader and the the, the touring band's like hey guys we should probably look at doing like a fall tour because we got to get it you know when we can and we have you know more dates coming in for next year and bands are like hey we should start planning it and i'm just like oh man this is going to be I'm, I'm about to get back into the NAR. I'm about to be doing the, the, the juggling act again. So just to just, just write down somewhere. Remember, remember how happy you were when things were kind of more balanced to it. You had, you know, a certain amount, only a certain amount of time to do this, only a certain mm. amount of time to do that. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to fall into those same traps though. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I have been charging more and Good. my brand has been getting much, much more attention and love. And so, uh, it is starting to pan out better, but for me, I, you know, I've, I've had, I, I mentioned Jake Sarek before and like, he's got a proper shop with employees and like, he's doing the thing. He is crushing the game and I'm super happy for him. And I've, I, I mean, I've seen what he's done and I can, I can really appreciate it, but I know that's not for me. And that's not the kind of business that I'm ever going to run because of just the style of how I build and my brand. And, um, I'm okay with that because I want, I want it to always sort of be something that doesn't spiral out of control where it pulls me away from all these other things that I love to do. So it's great to know that though. Seriously. It's great to know that. I mean, in terms of your shop, uh, like actually kind of a two-parter before you sort of learned how to build bases uh, and work on instruments, did you have any like woodworking experience at all before? None at all. No, not at all totally from scratch yeah carl gave me the mcmaster car catalog and was like read this and if you've ever seen that thing it's like oh yeah Yeah, it's a beast and uh i didn't know what a router was i didn't know you know like i didn't have any skills whatsoever i bought a drill press. i like went on craigslist and bought a drill press and like the throat was like this deep and it was like this big and i was like oh no this is not gonna work and so i just ended up chucking it and then i had to buy like a full-size one but um that was there was sort of like the when I moved from doing parts bases into doing making them from the ground up the first hump was like Carl helped me sort of work through it as far as how you prepare boards for becoming instruments um and a lot of it was just uh I was hanging out on the luthiers corner on talk base like every night my wife would go to sleep and I would stay in bed and just read the forums till like two in the morning and I was essentially what I started doing was piecing together process that would work based on the tools that i had and the space that i had so i always wonder that yeah yeah and and so being in a city my my shop 
life has essentially been like, I started the business in a, in a one bedroom apartment in the Logan Square neighborhood and was like sanding stuff on my back porch and like doing assembly work on a wicker trait, like table thing. Um, and like a, you know, a bath towel. And it was just, I had no idea what I was doing and it was fine. And then um, we bought a condo and I was under the assumption that I could set up my shop in the guest bedroom. And I remember the first time I routed a pick guard for a customer and it just sprayed plastic like shards all over the bed sheet and like the, the bed skirt. And uh, I was like, yeah, this is not going to work. <laughs> and the dust, like the dust was just insane. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and so then I got a space in a, a rehearsal studio. It was like 300 bucks a month. It was all I could afford. And um, there were these just terrible punk bands that would rehearse on all sides of me when I'd be in there working, <laughs> just playing so loud. This place had like no insulation. The bathroom upstairs went from like bad to just like overflowing shit out of the bathroom. I mean, it was the place was just so gnarly. And um, we were we were gutting our bathroom in our condo. And I remember being down in the basement of the condo building with our contractor and there was this closet and I like went and opened it up. I'd never gone in there before. And it was an old like supers office, like workshop. Oh, and I was like, holy crap. And I just pretty much took it over and nice. brought, I like moved out of the rehearsal studio. Cause I'm like, screw this place. This place is terrible. And I moved into there and uh, that's when I really started to refine my process because I like could finally set up a shop where it was, it was a small room. It was like a six foot by 10 foot room with no windows Right. And like, I had to run electricity in there. Um, but it was where I really started to like figure out from a logistical point of view, like what is the, the best and quickest way I can make as many instruments as possible yeah. and then sell them and charge as much money for them as I can. Um, so yeah, we since sold our condo and I had to move out of the shop and we bought a house. And so now I am in the process of setting up a new shop space in the basement of the house. So. It's cool. Yeah. How, how big is that space? Uh, it's, I have not measured it yet, but it is bigger. It is substantially bigger. It's not huge. Um, but I, like I said, I don't really store a lot of young lumber because I have access to a lumber yard where I can pretty much just get whatever I need when I need yeah. it. I, I just, I don't, I had a, a guy tell me once I was trying to order some bird's eye maple for a custom build. And he said, and he's like, here, I can send you these billets and you can just cut them down. And I was like, well, I don't have a bandsaw. And he's like, what? How can you be a luthier and not have a bandsaw? Like that is the single most important thing you can have in your shop. And I wanted to send him my page and be like, hey, like, check it out. <laughs> I don't have a bandsaw. Look at these instruments. Like, it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out here doing the thing with the stuff that I got. So can you sell me the bird's eye in the dimensions I need or not? You know, it's... <laughs> Yeah. there's so many ways to do yeah. every part of the process of building an instrument it's like i mean the the only thing there's zero substitute for is sanding and yeah. that is it is the one thing that going into this i did not give the full weight so of consideration sanding. so much sanding. so much sanding yeah. and therefore if you own a shop so much sand control and dust yeah. control yeah. like yeah. especially when that shop is in the place where you live so I guess, you know, just to sort of wrap things up then, I mean, yeah. one, of the, one of the things that we talk to everybody about is just, you know, the, you know, the number of people that sort of inspire you and, you know, sort of come alongside you and have sort of invested in you and you've named, 
I don't know. I, I was, I sort of lost count. Actually, it was like 11 or 12 people or something like that. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to me, like it never fails that, um, you know, any successful, anybody we've ever anyway had on the show, but anybody successful in general has sort of had their tribe, you know, of people that have, you know, like, again, just sort of invested in them over the, over the years. So that's, it's really cool just to be able to sort of see how that's happened, you know, with you. And, you know, I, you know, I can just tell, like, I can see it in your face. It's like, you're appreciative of, you know, all of that and, and like, you know, the time and, you know, effort and money and, you know, that, that, that people have put into you, right. So that you can turn around and do what you love and then, you know, sort of do the same for other people too. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I have, I have great customers. I have a lot of repeat customers, yeah. um, which is all you can ask for in, in a business like this. It's like, is, you know, those are the best kind of customers because um, they're, they're really kind of like, going in to support you because there are a lot of people that could build instruments for them for, you know, a comparable price point. So it's, uh, it's really great to have customers who support your brand and who like your instruments. And for me, selfishly, I always have sweet instruments on hand and it's amazing to just as a player to just kind of always have cool stuff around. Um, and to, to be able to share that with other musicians. And I mean, I, I really, I kind of like, I get it now a little bit more from the Luthier's point of view of just like how good it feels to see someone playing an instrument that you made by hand and all that time and energy that went into making it for someone and seeing them play it, whether it be online in the last year or so posting videos or whether it be in person playing playing it and, and sharing that music with other people in person. But yeah. it is a really, really gratifying feeling. Yeah, awesome. um, and to have people buy your instruments on the secondhand market, which is a fairly new thing for me, and to have people who the bass wasn't even built for pick it up and just be like, this is an incredible instrument. Like, I didn't know anything about you, but like, I'm sure glad I got my hands on this instrument and ask questions about it and want to know about it. And, and so that's cool too, because it sort of forces you to readjust your perception a little bit of your business to be like, um, not to shortchange anyone, but to realize that the life of this instrument is not exclusively tied to this one person. And um, keeping that in mind when you're building uh, and, and realizing that when you enter into a partnership with an instrument and a customer, like theoretically that partnership is for the rest of your life because they should be able to play that instrument for the rest of their life. Um, and so that kind of gives it some weight for me. And I think that's probably because of the kind of customers that I have versus being just a mass production type of operation. Um, but that's part of why I like it so much. I think, you know, there's, there's some charm in there. Hey everybody. If you'd like to hear more from bass players, builders, techs, uh, just head over to our blog at bestbassgear.com slash ebase. Or if you want to hear more uh, and listen to some of the podcasts like this one, you can just search for Best Bass Gears, The Lowdown. Uh, if you'd like to just please, please just take uh, five seconds. And if you'd like this show, if you want to support us, uh, I just have one simple request. Uh, please just take five seconds and click on the like or the follow button or leave us a five-star rating. Uh, just share this video or tag somebody that'd like to hear it. 
uh, you know, we just helps us to get the word out. Uh, thank you so much. We're super excited. Frankie and I are working really hard on, on putting these things together and, and giving you uh, lots of, uh, of interviews just like this one. Um, we just need to get some, uh, get some love out there in order to, to get this podcast surfaced and, uh, people can find us on the, on the various podcast channels, whatever you guys use, uh, super excited again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening.